Well, good morning, church. The Eckholms are here. Great to see you guys. Sorry for that little moment right there. It's good to see them as they've been watching from home. And I know that's true of many others each week. As I've said before, it's great to see you entering into this place where you're with God's people. And uh, still welcome those who are watching from home. And uh, it's good to know that they're uh, still very much a part of EBC and, uh, and soon will continue to, to make their way in here and we're just thankful for that. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. Now there's gum in my hair. When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He says, I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, he goes, ah, Miss Gibson, let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I didn't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one ever answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I think I'll move to Australia. Well, at school, Alexander's day doesn't improve. His teacher doesn't like his drawing. He criticizes him for singing too loud and leaving out 16 at counting time. Who needs 16, he says. After school, he goes to the dentist. He finds out in all the family, he's the only one that has a cavity. And then as he's leaving, the elevator closes on his foot. At home, they have lima beans for dinner, which he hates lima beans. And on TV, there's kissing, and he hates kissing. At bath time, the water's too hot. He gets soap in his eyes and he drops marbles down the drain. Finally in bed, his nightlight burns out. He bites his tongue and the cat chooses to sleep with his brother Anthony instead of him. And at the end of all this, he concludes it's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. Now you probably know days like this, right? Maybe on your way in today, you go, this is a terrible, horrible day. We all experience that. And I can't help but think of how horrible it must have been for the prophet Daniel to have been given the visions as he did of the future for his people. I mean, you talk about a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Daniel sees some horrendous events in days ahead for the people of God. We saw last week as we looked at Daniel chapter 7, Daniel let us in on how he felt about what he saw. You might recall uh, from last week uh, that what was recorded for us uh, of Daniel's reaction, it said he was troubled and deeply disturbed. Well, look with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. It's always better if you follow along. And so turn to Daniel chapter 8. And if you thought uh, Daniel chapter 7 was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. In chapter 8, after receiving this incredible vision and given its interpretation, I want you to notice Daniel's take on it, okay? Uh, So look with me at the very end of the passage in verse 27. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. Daniel says, notice this, he says, after seeing this vision, after seeing the interpretation, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now that's a preacher's nightmare right here. (laughs) 
Daniel, who had the God-given ability to interpret dreams and visions, doesn't understand it, then what chance do I have? Well, we do have one advantage over Daniel in looking at chapter 8. We have the benefit of hindsight. While this is all future for Daniel, it is history for us. Now, perhaps this is the very first sermon you've ever heard on Daniel chapter 8. You know, in, in over 30 years of preaching, this is the first time I ever preached a sermon on Daniel chapter 8. And as I was working through it, I said, and it will be the last time. <laughs> but you know, as I continued in it, though, I was extremely blessed by this chapter. So, so hang in there this morning. And as I thought of this vision given to Daniel here in chapter 8 and the message to the people in his day who were nearing the end of the 70-year captivity, I couldn't help but think of the kid's favorite question when on a road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we at the end of this yet? Hopefully you're not saying that as we go through this chapter. Are we there yet? But the question really is how much longer, right? How much longer? Are we there yet? Not only questions for the dreaded long road trip, but for long-term sufferers. Often the psalmist would ask, how long, O Lord, how long? The prophet Habakkuk that Pastor Dan will be looking at for the next two weeks opens with that question. How long? Are we there yet? How long? See, whether you look at the, the, the big issues of our society today, or some personal struggle in your life, you might be asking, how long? How long must I go through this? And I trust that our time in chapter 8 will provide some uh, bright hope for dark days. Now, my approach to Daniel chapter 8 is the same as last week in looking at uh, Daniel chapter 7. I want to kind of take a step back, see the big picture. So let me give you some principles to hang some of the particulars on uh, this morning. Principle number one is since God knows every single detail of the future, it can, it should calm our fears. Since God knows every single detail of the future, it should calm our fears. All right, look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. As I noted last week, uh, from chapter 7 to the end of the book, Daniel now speaks in the first person. All right, verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, meaning in chapter 7. This vision here is about two years later. Now, the year's uh, 550 B.C. The Babylonian Empire is still in power and will continue to be in power for roughly another uh, 12 years. Verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. So Daniel was spiritually, now not physically, spiritually transported to a place that would eventually become the capital of the Persian Empire. It was located uh, 230 miles directly east of Babylon, 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, which is what is known today as Kuwait. You might recall it was the home of Esther in 460 B.C., and it was the home of Nehemiah in 445 B.C., but at this time in 550 B.C., it was nothing. Verse 3, Daniel said, I looked up, there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. 
Verse 4, I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, this, this ram, and became great. Now when you see horn, it basically stands for power. You could just put in the word dominion or power. It's, it, it marks one who takes the place of rulership. So as Daniel's taking in the image of this, this ram, suddenly, it says in verse 5, suddenly there's now a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground, which is just another way of saying it moved very quickly. Verse 6, he, the goat, came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. And so you have the ram, you have the goats. Now, let me put all this together for you as, as, as simply as I can. The ram represents the St. Louis Rams football team. And the goat, of course, is Tom Brady. You can say that out loud here. Some parts of the country you cannot. So this is a picture of the Super Bowl win of the Pats over the Rams. Who knew this was in the book of Daniel? Well, you know, actually, actually, we don't have the freedom to fill in the identity of these two animals any way we want. We're told in verse 20 exactly who it is. All right, so we can't fill it in. Verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media, Media and Persia. One, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, we saw last week in chapter 7 that what Daniel uh, saw covered the uh, span of time from Daniel's day through the four Gentile kingdoms all the way to the return of Christ. So let me remind you of these four empires, all right, these four nations, these four kingdoms, all right? There's, there's Babylon, the time right now where Daniel is, and then there's, there's Medo-Persia, kingdom number two, that's just one, Medo-Persia. Then there's Greece, and then there's Rome. The second vision given to Daniel here in chapter 8 concerns only the middle two, Medo-Persia and the Greek empires. That's it, Medo-Persia and Greece. So you have this ram with two horns, one being the Medes and the other Persia, and eventually the one horn, Persia, which started out smaller, becomes stronger than the Medes, and it really just becomes the Persian Empire. Now, again, the timing of this vision is significant. It took place, this vision took place before chapters 5 and 6. Now, we know what happened in 6 with Daniel and the lion's den. But this also took place before Daniel chapter 5. Well, what happened in Daniel chapter 5? Well, Belshazzar, acting king of Babylon, was having this big party, remember? And while everyone was carrying on in this one big drunk fest... Some words showed up on a wall and, and, and probably sobered them up rather quickly. The writing on the wall indicated that Belshazzar's time as king would end and would be taken over by the Medes and the Persians, the second kingdom. Matter of fact, while they're all living it up inside the palace, the Medes and the Persians on the outside, they were making their move. Now, Daniel received this vision before before Babylon was taken over by Cyrus of Persia. Before. 
And while Cyrus then, king of Persia, was having everything his own way, he, like all kings, all rulers, all presidents, have a shelf life. It's the case with all of them. See, it's God who exalts, and it's God who brings down. He determines that. When he says, you're done, you're done. And when you go in, you go in. That's how it works. Years ago, the great baseball player, Babe Ruth, was at the plate when he got into this argument with the umpire. The pitch came in, and he thought it was a ball. The umpire called it a strike. And Babe Ruth got into this argument with the umpire, and he said, listen, ump, 40,000 people here know that last pitch was a ball, not a strike. The umpire calmly replied, yes, but mine is the only opinion that counts. And that's true. Same with God. It's his opinion that counts. And when he says your time is up, your time is up. He has the final word. doesn't matter what everybody else says. He has the final word. Now, the goat, the male goat, representing the third kingdom, Greece, with one mighty charge then, comes in and shatters the horns, the dominion of the Medo-Persian ram. Ram, gone. The one horn between its eyes of this goat was the king Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was known for his speed in which he conquered the Medes and the Persians, described as his feet not touching the ground. And Alexander's conquest uh, of the entire Near and Middle East was within three years, that was unprecedented. Now he rose to the top very quickly, but you know what? He crashed rather quickly too. He died suddenly at the young age of 33. And verse 8 tells us, verse 8 tells us, the goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn, his dominion, was broken off. Alexander died, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And so we now have four new horns on this goat, four smaller kingdoms of Greece. Alexander died, he's out of the picture. His empire was then divided between uh, uh, four of his generals. Then we come to verse 9. Out of the one of them, one of the generals, the four generals, came another horn, which started out small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, meaning Israel or Jerusalem. That's what the beautiful land is. All right. Who is this small or little horn? Now, we have to be very careful here. It's not the same little horn we saw in chapter 7. That horn came from the fourth empire, and this one clearly is from Greece, the third empire. So don't just, just because you see little horn, oh, we know what that is. No, you don't. Don't make that jump. The Bible can use little horn in different ways, and it does here. It's not the same one we read about last week. It comes from the Greece, the third empire. And, and, and it's this ruler, this, this, this little horn, after humble beginnings, grew in power and had his way with Jewish people. Virtually all historians and, and, and biblical writers consider this here in chapter 8 to be a prophecy of Antiochus, who was also called Epiphanes. All right, Antiochus Epiphanes, he hated the Jews. He, he had this crazy obsession to persecute and destroy all the Jewish people. And the Jewish people referred to in verse 11 as the starry host. That's the Jewish people, starry host Jewish people. And they, it says they, they were being trampled. 
this Antiochus Epiphanes, he wanted to wipe out Judaism. He forced people to fully assimilate into the Greek culture and into the Greek religion. You see, the Jewish people, after returning from captivity, they were faced with a challenge. And after 70 years of captivity, and you think they might have learned their lesson here where their loyalty was going to lie, but they had to make this choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. From this point, who will you serve? And sadly, many of the returnees compromised and caved into the culture. But you know what? It's the same question we have, we have to answer today. Choose this day whom you will serve. You're going to have to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan put it. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Who will you serve? Are you on the Lord's side? Well, verses 10 through 12, not a pretty picture. It's interpreted in verses 23 through 25. You can read it for yourself, but it tells us of some of what Antiochus Epiphanes set out to do. He was going to proclaim to be equal with God. And God's referred to here in verse 11 as the prince of the host. He would proclaim to be equal with God. Historians tell us that he went as far uh, as, as to have stamped on all coins this inscription. Antiochus, the God made manifest. That's pretty bold. He's going to put an end to the daily sacrifice of the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to replace it with a heathen sacrifice offered to an idol, Zeus. And for a powerful ruler to advance and get his way, truth must be a victim. And the end of verse 12 says that truth is a victim. It says that truth was thrown to the ground. It was thrown to the ground. You've got to get rid of truth if you just want to rise to power and do your own thing. You've got to get rid of truth first. Now again, history is very helpful here. It said that Antiochus Epiphanes burned the Torah scrolls, the five books of the, of the law, and he even decreed that anyone found possessing the book of the law or adhering to it would be condemned to death. Now, this Antiochus Epiphanes was a very evil man. He ruled from 175 to 164 before Christ. He showed up in that time known as the intertestamental period in which the Old Testament shut down and when the New Testament then picked it up. It's often referred to as 400 silent years. Listen, it was anything but silent. It was only silent in the sense that God's written revelation, revelation was on pause. And this time in the intertestamental period, under, under Antiochus Epiphanes, that's considered to be the darkest time in Jewish history until the Holocaust, in which six million, six million Jews were executed. With Antiochus, the death toll was smaller, though, though no less tragic, when 40,000 Jews were killed and another 40,000 Jews were sold into slavery. Now, as an important aside, I want you to consider the preservation of God's people. In Israel's history, they have faced the threat of extinction more than once. It happened during the days of Elijah when the prophet uh, thought he was the only one left who believed in God. Remember that scene? And God reminds Elijah, gives him a little perspective, and, and he says, yet I reserve 7,000, Elijah, 7,000 in Israel, all who knees have not bowed down to Baal. A remnant was preserved. 
the time of Esther, the maniac Haman intended on wiping out the Jewish people, but God intervened and saved his people from extinction. If Antiochus was able to snuff out the Jewish people completely, then Jesus' coming for the nation of Israel would not have happened. See, there's really only one explanation for the Jewish people still being around. God's intervention. God's plan. There's still a future for the Jewish people. You see, history is going somewhere. History is moving along according to God's sovereign plan. God knows and he's sovereign over the future. It's true in Daniel's day and it's still true today. The great detail in which God gives this vision to Daniel is a reminder to us that God knows every single detail of the future. On a, on, on a big scale level, but also on a personal level. We may not know all the details, but God sees us. He has it. One night, the house caught on fire, and a young boy was forced to flee to the roof. The father stood on the ground below in outstretched arms. He called out to his son, jump, jump, and I'll catch you. All the boy could see was the flame and the smoke, darkness. He was afraid to jump from the roof, and his father kept urging him to jump, jump, and I'll catch you. And the, and the boy protested, but Daddy, I can't see you. And the father replied, but I can see you, and that's all that matters. Church in the darkness, we may not always see what God is doing. Be assured, God can see you. He's got it. He's got it. All right, principle number two. Principle number two, since God always puts a time limit on our suffering, can keep us hopeful in dark days. Since God always puts a time limit on our suffering, can keep us hopeful in dark days. Now, while Daniel is pondering the serious impact of all of this, God allows him, he positions uh, uh, Daniel to overhear two angels talking with each other. This is not an accident. He does this to bring Daniel some hope amidst the darkness. God does that. You might recall he did it with Gideon when he was feeling kind of overwhelmed with fear about the battle in front of him. And God positioned, he allowed Gideon to hear two men from the opposing side talking about the victory Gideon and his army was going to have over them. He heard their plans. He heard that they were going to be defeated and Gideon's army was going to defeat them. See, God did this to encourage Gideon. It's not an accident. God does that. I call this a postcard from God. You know that text or, or phone call from a friend just when you needed it? That random note from someone you never expected to get one from, it lifts your spirits. That verse of the day or that devotional thought that shows up at a time when you're feeling a little beaten down. A postcard from God that reminds you he hasn't forgotten you. Can you point to some of those? Well, Daniel receives that postcard. Look at verse 13. And I believe these are two angels here. Then I heard a holy one speaking. That's one angel. And another holy one said to, that, to, to him. It's two angels talking. Daniel's hearing this. One says to the other, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. 
How long? Is that not the question we ask in the midst of a terrible, horrible time? How long? How long do I have to put up with these people here at work? How long must I deal with this chronic pain? How long do I have to struggle in this marriage? How long before I see my child turn to the Lord? How long must I stay single? How long? And on a cosmic scale, how long will God allow this evil to continue? How long? That's certainly on Daniel's mind and on the people's mind. How long will God allow the temple and the sacrifice and the people of God be crushed like this? How long? How long would God permit this power-obsessed man to turn the holy temple into prostitution centers? Because that's what he was doing. How long? The vision had a timetable. God doesn't always let us in on how long our trials are going to last. In this case, he does Look at verse 14. The angel says to Daniel, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So how long will God permit Antiochus Epiphanes to do as he pleases? The answer is 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. God prophesies at the coming of this horrible day when the holy temple would be closed and the sacrifice of God's people shut down, they could find hope, though, and that the time of their suffering had a limit. It would last 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, what does that mean, 2,300 evenings and mornings? Well, it may either mean 2,300 days with the evenings and morning being one day, or it could be 2,300 individual sacrifices. And both are good possibilities. I just tend to land on referring, that this is referring to the number of sacrifices that would be missed because of the temple's desecration. There were, there were to be two sacrifices a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so the number of days this refers to, I believe, is 1,150 days, which comes out to be a little over three years. Now, you can check some history on this and do your own research, but that was the length of time that Antiochus issued his decree forbidding worship of God. And it seems that from the time Antiochus set up an altar to Zeus to the temple being cleansed and rededicated, it was approximately three years. And by the way, it's this rededication of the temple that instituted um, Hanukkah. Hanukkah means dedication celebrates this event. They do it at the Festival of Lights, and there's a story that goes with that. You can, you can Google it. But when all is said and done, Antiochus's time was limited and controlled by God. Now, that should be reassuring. It should keep us hopeful even in dark times. As God has done again and again and again, he will intervene on behalf of his people in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes as well as in the distant future in the time of the tribulation when one like this man described here, like this man described here, will persecute and oppress the Jewish people. And as the end of verse 25 predicts, Antiochus' sudden destruction says it's not by human hands but by God himself. Listen, anyone who persecutes the people of God will be removed. At some point. It's a shelf life. There's a time limit on suffering. All right, I need to get to principle three. You're going to start asking, are we there yet? Principle three. Even though, this is really the application. This is the takeaway. So, so I hope you're with me. Here's the application. Here's our takeaway this morning. Even though what we see sickens us, 
Church, get busy with the king's business. Even though what we see sickens us, get busy with the king's business. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you, Daniel, is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Now, when it says seal up the vision, it doesn't mean keep it silent or keep it in secret. That's not what it means. It means hold on to, preserve it. Preserve it, Daniel, for generations to come. And it has been. We're reading it this morning. But notice that Daniel is told that the vision he has been given is true. And that it concerns a distant future. Because for Daniel, this was all future. We see distant future, we say, oh, it's got to be the end times. Maybe. For Daniel, this was distant future. He wasn't, this wasn't all happening right now. This is predictive. And this is exactly why many doubters of the supernatural don't believe that Daniel wrote this 200 years before it happened. Their presupposition is that no one can predict this in advance. So this had to be written after the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire and after the rise of Greece. I mean, how could Daniel write so specifically about what would happen years later? Because God knows it all, and he told Daniel. Can God make these kind of predictions that actually come true? Yes, he can. Really, it's one of the evidences that the Bible is true. It's one of the evidences. And as we live in that period of time in which we ask, are we there yet? Trust that just as these predictions were 100% accurate, so will all of what God said will take place in our future as well. All his promises are yes and amen. They're all true. 100% of the time. God's word is true. And God pulls back the curtain for Daniel to see what lies ahead for his people. And Daniel sees that the people would face some horrible, no good, very bad days ahead, and it was going to get worse before it got better. But what Daniel has been given is true. You know what happens next? Daniel faints. That's what it says, verse 27. The NIV says, I, Daniel, was exhausted. Listen, exhausted is a very nice way of saying he passed out. He fainted. That's Daniel's emotional reaction to all this. He got a glimpse into the future. His people were being persecuted. Many of them slaughtered. He saw the name of his God being defiled, and he fainted. He was so overwhelmed with sorrow, he passed out. And it says, and he was even sick about it for days. That's how much he cared for the people of God. And I thought to myself, does the word of God have that kind of effect on me? <laughs> I mean, when's the last time I was so concerned about what I read or heard in God's word, it made me ill? Daniel was ill for several days. But don't miss this next part. Then Daniel says, then I got up and I went about the king's business. Daniel got up and continued serving the king. He went back to his routine. He went back to doing what he was appointed to do and where God placed him. John Wesley was asked 
what he would do if he knew that his Lord would return at this time the next day. And he said this, well, I'd go to bed and go to sleep. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd go on with my work for I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. That's how I want God to find me. How should prophecy affect us? What difference does it make? How then should we live? Be about God's work. See, the whole point, am I going with the theme for this series, being a bright spot in a dark world? It's not so that we can get a bunch of charts together and figure out when this is all going to happen. It's so that we respond to prophecy by what? Being about God's work. Building kingdom, his kingdom, advancing it. When Jesus speaks of future things in Matthew 24 and 25, he ends his Olivet Discourse, his sermon, by saying the servant needs to be busy about God's work. He wants us to be about his work while we wait for the master to return. Be about God's work, church. Be about God's work. Be that bright spot where God has placed you. Let future things compel us to be about his business until he returns. While touring Europe, a tourist visited a beautiful estate in Italy. He admired the picturesque, picturesque garden. He then had the privilege of, of, of bumping into the gardener. And he said, to this tourist said to the gardener, you know, you've done a wonderful job on this garden. How long have you worked here? 25 years, the gardener answered. Well, I'm curious, the tourist said. How often has the owner been to this estate? Four times, the gardener replied. Four times in 25 years? When was the last time he was here? 12 years ago. The tourist says, I, I, I don't get it. You keep the garden so beautiful. One would assume you're expecting the owner tomorrow. Today, sir. Today. Today, sir, today. Is that our attitude? Are you busy doing the Lord's work? Are we there yet? Are we about to cross the finish line? Who knows? One thing's for sure. We are to be about his work until he returns. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? We need to answer that. Let's pray. God, thank you for helping me to endure through this chapter. It's not easy. And I thank God for these people here that did the same. There are gems here. You have it here for a reason. This wasn't just something that was on Daniel's mind. He had to write it down. You put it here because you say in the New Testament, all of Scripture, Daniel chapter 8 is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work so equip us from this chapter as we go out from here today, I pray in Jesus' name.